Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Battlefield Next. My name is Major Jason Coffey. Before we get started with this episode, let's do some housekeeping. The views expressed on the podcast are the views of the participants and do not necessarily represent those of the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, the U.S. Army, the Department of Defense, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Today's episode is an interview of Brigadier General Rich Gross, former legal counsel to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, by Major J.J. Wellemeyer and Major Coffey. The episode discusses the evolution of national security and operational law, the importance of judge advocate integration into the units they're advising, and advising commanders in an operational setting. Without further delay, we move to the episode. Hey, good morning, sir, and thank you for coming and participating in the podcast. The topic we'd like to talk to you about is the evolution of national security and operational law at the beginning of your practice until now. What was the practice of national security like for Captain Gross or operational law, as it was called, for Captain Gross? Well, and thank you for having me on the show, first of all, Jason. I really appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. And gosh, I wish I'd had one of these to listen to, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So I, I wouldn't make as many mistakes as I did. You know, when I was a captain at the 101st Airborne Division at, at Fort Campbell Air Assault, I would have to quickly add, operational law was was fairly new to the JAG Corps, and we honestly didn't know what it was. I mean, we had this captain that got assigned to work with the G3 over in division headquarters. We weren't really sure what he was doing. We didn't understand why he wasn't working in the JAG office like the rest of us were and why he was over there. And we just didn't have a, a real sense of the role. And nobody really wanted the job because nobody knew what it entailed. It, it just felt like you were going to be the orphan who was sent to work with the G3. I mean, it's, it's funny saying that now because that is so much the norm that you would go to the client, that you would work integrated into their operations and be such a huge part of everything from beginning to end, from drafting the operations order to the execution of the, of the operation itself. But back then, it just was so strange. We all wanted to be either trial counsel or do some admin law and stay at the JAG office. That's what we thought was normal. And I, I got to tell you, we do it so much better today than we did back then. So what was your first substantive NSL op law job in the JAG Corps? And what was your experience level? Not much experience level. It, it would have also been during that first tour, as a, my first tour as a JAG officer at Fort Campbell. I mean, occasionally we would get tapped to go participate in an exercise, to participate in, in some planning. I, there was one time when I was the duty JAG. So I was, I was on call and we had a pretty big snowstorm at Fort Campbell and in the surrounding areas. And so the division staff got called in to essentially stay up all night in the operations center and write an operations order for that aftermath of that big snowstorm, both on Fort Campbell and out in the city of Clarksville. And so because I was on call, I was the one who was in the headquarters prepared to answer any questions that might have come up about court to civil authorities and some of the other issues that I think most folks listening to this are probably very familiar with. And ironically, the, uh, there were two people who stayed awake all night in the operations center. One was me and one was then Lieutenant Colonel Dave Petraeus, who we all know later became four-star yeah, General uh, Dave Petraeus of CENTCOM and, and ISAP fame. But he was, the, he was a Lieutenant Colonel G3 planner who stayed up all night and wrote this order. Hey, sir, I just want to jump in here real quick. Can you just talk a little bit about 
how important it was or, or wasn't for you to be integrated with your staff and, and to be there and, and to be seen as a, a contributing member and how that maybe impacted your ability to give legal advice and have it, have it followed if necessary? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question, JJ. You know, it was funny at Fort Campbell where they weren't used to seeing JAGs integrated down at the brigade. They weren't used to seeing us around actively at the division staff level, except for that one guy who was the operational law attorney. And so they didn't use us and we didn't know how to offer help. I mean, we treated it, we kind of treated it like we were a dentist. I, I, sometimes when I give a leadership talk, I'll talk about don't be a dentist. Don't sit in your office and wait for somebody to come to you with a problem. But that's exactly what we were doing back then. We waited till they came to us and said, hey, can we provide this support to the local sheriffs in, in a snowstorm? We waited for them to ask us and we weren't integrated. It wasn't until my first real operational law job. For me, it was when I was the legal advisor to Delta Force from 2001 to 2003. That was the, really the first time that I was integrated into operations. I, I made it my business to be there in the planning segments, to be as integrated as possible, to go on exercises, to go on real world operations, obviously, and to make sure that I was integral to their operations. I didn't want them to ever look around a room, not see me, and just move on without asking the question. And the only way to do that is to be there, to be present. And so I was careful to already always be around so that when they needed me, I was there. Sir, one of our previous guests was Mr. Fred Bork, and he talked from a historical perspective about the growth of operational law with some of the operations that happened at the 82nd Airborne in the 1980s. Could you talk a little bit about how you've seen that field grow from your personal experiences? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, back then, similar to what I was telling you about the 101st, the JAGs were all centralized in the SJA office working up there. You didn't have a dedicated brigade council like we do now. I mean, that's the norm now. I mean, we don't even question the fact that we have JAGs down at the brigade level fully integrated into their operations. And yet at the time, back when I was a major and a captain, that was unusual. That was odd. I think some of what accelerated that process had to be all of the uh, combat operations after 9-11 in 2001, when suddenly we were deploying first to Afghanistan and then a few years later to Iraq and a constant presence in both of those countries. And that necessitated the JAGs being fully involved in the operations and, and available and I can remember when they first said, oh, we're going we're gonna to move these brigade judge advocates down to the brigade. You know, the reaction of the people who'd been around a long time was, that was threatening. That was, you can't do that. They'll go native. We won't be there to supervise them. We won't be there to mentor them and coach them. Well, it turns out it was absolutely the right thing to do. You have to trust your folks and send them down to where the client is so they can be part of the operations. And we should have done that decades before we did, but it just wasn't the model. It wasn't what we were used to, and it took some time to change. But that was, that was a real innovation at the time. Now it just seems like routine, but at the time, that was an, that was an innovation, sending a brigade judge advocate down to work and live on that staff, and that was huge. And really, from 9-11 forward, any time I was in an operational unit as a judge advocate, that's where I was. I was never sitting in a JAG office somewhere by myself or with other JAGs. I was typically out with the, you know, trying to be with the troops. Now, when you get to a certain level, like CENTCOM, a combatant command, or you get to the joint staff, 
up in the Pentagon. Then naturally you're in an office with other judge advocates. But even then, you don't sit there waiting for the clients to come to you. you you're out and about going to meetings. I mean, most of the judge advocates I worked with at CENTCOM and also at the joint staff and at JSOC, we didn't all sit in the office and wait for people to come to us. We went to them. We were out at meetings. We were out in briefings. We were out assisting in the planning and going through the collaboration and, and the brainstorming. We, we were an integrated part of all that. And that's the only way you can make that work. Sir, as you practice national security law, app law, over your career, you've certainly seen some priority shift. What kept you up at night when you first started practicing? Well, really, right after 9-11, it was almost solely focused, at least at my level, on the rules of engagement and really the law of armed conflict. So, you know, how do we conduct military operations in Afghanistan and follow the rules of engagement, follow the law of armed conflict? And it was, I don't want to say basic because it, it never is in combat, but a pretty narrow focus. Uh, now, the units I worked with, the special operations, we were, you know, very focused on our authorities as well. What what are we authorized to do by the Secretary of Defense and the combatant commander, and what are we what do we have to ask permission to go do? And so that was that was a focus of my practice that may be a little unusual, but that's part of special operations and so forth. But as the longer we were in Afghanistan, as, as the operations matured, uh, then detainee operations became a new focus. You all are obviously, everyone is very familiar with Abu Ghraib and some of the atrocities that were committed there, both in the field of detention, but also in the field of interrogation. And those are two very different issues. And you also had some, some allegations involving Guantanamo and some other things. And so detention became one of the big focuses. That used to be on deployments in the early to mid 2000s. That was really the focus of, if anything concerned me, it was making sure that we were following the law and the regulations and the guidance that we were given on detention ops and interrogation ops. But Because after Abu Ghraib, that all changed. I mean, we had, uh, we went from pre-Abu Ghraib when we had the law of armed conflict, we had some guidance, we had a, a fairly generic field manual on interrogation to post Abu Ghraib when we, we had extensive guidance, ex, uh, new law, we had new manuals, we had new procedures and, and new tracking and processes. And so that became really a, a big focus. As I matured and, and moved up into different roles with, with other operational commands and with CENTCOM and so forth, then you then you start to become more focused on, on military operations in places other than Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, what are the other authorities that we have? What are we doing in other places and so forth? Uh, counterterrorism operations and things like that. And so that became more and more the focus. And then one, once I got up to the joint staff, it was anything and everything that went on globally we, we were concerned about. Sir, now that you're five years on from retirement, have those worries and priorities changed? Well, I mean, I'm not responsible now, so that makes life a little easier. But if you ask me, what was I concerned about when I left versus what am I concerned about now? Uh, or yes, would sir. I be concerned about if, yeah, if I were on the job? I think during my time on the Joint Staff, so 2011 and to 2015, counterterrorism remained an issue. And we were certainly focused on that. We were still in ongoing operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. But if, if you said, what keeps you up at night? What do you think is most a risk that I, as a, an attorney, as a military attorney, ought to be thinking about? I think back then I would have told you cyber. 
would have been the main thing, that cyber operations against us, it's not a very well-developed area of the law. As far as the law of armed conflict goes, it's certainly, we have the talent manual, we have some other guidance that's helpful, but it's just an area where folks aren't used to thinking as they are with routine armed conflict that we've looked at for centuries, certainly decades. So I would have said cyber. As I was getting ready to leave the Joint Staff 2014-2015, I think gray zone conflict or hybrid warfare or some of the other terms we've heard, those begin to be a concern. You know, these areas where it's really not armed conflict at all, it's more nation state on nation state competition that falls below the level of armed conflict. Sometimes that's cyber, sometimes that's ship operations in in contested waters, all sorts of things like that. And, And those are areas where people tend to look to the military for responses but it it may not be a military issue. It may be diplomacy or something else. And so you really have to be clear about what your authorities are, what your rules of engagement are, and so forth. Five years later, you say, what would concern you the most if you were a practicing operational lawyer right now? I think it's got to be artificial intelligence. I think that's the next huge leap. It already is, but I think, frankly, that's going to be the next leap in uh, or revolution in military affairs And I don't think the law, the regulations and other areas have really kept up and and the ethics, frankly, of how you use artificial intelligence. And yet our clients are looking at artificial intelligence in every area of combat, combat support and combat service support. They're integrating artificial intelligence in, in all their processes and procedures. And so it's an area where we had we need to make sure we have very well settled law if we can, and very well settled ethics, because there there may be things we can do legally, but we may not, maybe we shouldn't do them. And that's an ethics issue. And, and it's something we need to think through. Sarah, I want to just jump in and ask you a question about uh, maybe a more practical question for some of the younger judge advocates. I think when you start in the JAG Corps, and you're, a, you know, you're a new attorney, you look at things maybe a little bit more black and white, and you think that your commander 100% needs to listen to you, and if he or she doesn't, that the world's going to come to an end. And I know that this, that's an oversimplification, but could you talk a little bit about commanders assuming risk and how, how you gave legal advice to some of those commanders in the special operations community? Absolutely. Yeah, I used to say a lot, I'd tell a commander, I, I advise you decide. And as, and as part of that, we give advice and they, they make the final decision. They also bear the risk. And there aren't a lot of commanders who want to go against legal advice, but it depends. I mean, there, there are simple legal questions and there are, there are complex legal questions. And sometimes our legal advice is a matter of, of identifying risks and laying out courses of action that some are maybe better than others in our opinion and laying out the law and then letting the commander decide what to do. You know, I had a commander one time get frustrated with me and say, I, I, just give me a yes or no. I'm like, sir, I can't do that. I, you know, I, it's just the law just isn't clear in this area. You know, as we practice law, there's a couple of things we have to do, particularly as, as a young judge advocate. You know, if you're the man or woman that the commander sees once a month at their staff meeting, you're not going to have a lot of credibility and a lot of voice. If you're, on the other hand, they see you at their PT sessions. They see you at their staff meetings, their staff calls, their luncheons, 
their OPDs, their officer professional development sessions. They see you volunteer to teach classes. They see you active. Then now you have more credibility. You have presence and they know who you are and they're used to having you around. Now, I don't, I never abuse that as a judge advocate. I would attend a lot of meetings and often meetings that I didn't need to be at, but I would sit there and be present. And I knew enough not to say anything unless I needed to. Only if there was a legal issue that I needed to address on the spot would I, would I jump in. Now, the other thing I would add to that is, is sometimes we give counsel. I believe legal counsel is two different words. And our role as legal counsel is two different things. One is legal. We tell them what we think the law is. And when we do that as judge advocates, we're the only ones qualified to tell them what the law is, other than another attorney, obviously. But when we advise a commander, we're the, the J1, the J2, the J4, they don't give legal advice and they can't. And so when we give legal advice, we're the ones that do that. That's our expertise. But we can also give counsel. Sometimes, as I said earlier, the law says what you can do. Counsel advice kind of says maybe what you should do. And sometimes commanders look to us for that kind of policy advice, I'll say, or just counsel on what's the wisest course of action. And when we do that, we have to be crystal clear, first of all, that we're not giving legal advice, that we're given just policy advice. And then our opinion in those cases is no better or no worse than anybody else's. I, I will say as lawyers, we're trained to think differently. They, they, they screw something up in our brains at law school and uh, in a wonderful, <laughs> crazy way. And we, we shouldn't be afraid to use that. And so we often come at problems in a different way than other staff officers who've been trained differently and have had different schooling. And so our counsel in those cases can be very useful. I used to tell my guys, we don't concur or non-concur on something unless there's a legal issue. So, for, so when I would have my folks write a legal, menu, legal memo, it might say one sentence, no legal objection to this, this planned operation. And then it'd have three pages of reasons why it was a terrible idea what Harold Coe, the former State Department legal advisor, used to call lawful but awful. And I call it legal but stupid. Sometimes you tell the commander, hey, this is absolutely legal. You can do this. But it's a really stupid thing. And here's why. And you have to, you have to be willing to tell a commander that sometimes. And that can be a challenge. But if you only show up once a month at their staff meeting, you're going to have a real hard time doing that. Sir, I recognize that we're running close on time on this particular episode. One of the things we like to do is ask our guests for podcast, book, or any resource recommendations that they have that they think our leader, excuse me, our listeners might appreciate. So I'm wondering if you, if you have anything for us. Yeah, there's so many great podcasts out there that particularly if you have a commute or you have the time, can really educate yourself on things. The World Next Week from the Council on Foreign Relations is really good at looking at kind of the global strategic issues facing us. They also do another one called The President's Inbox, which I, I haven't listened to, frankly, in a while, but it was really good when I was listening to it. Anything The Economist does is world-class. They have more of a global perspective as well and tend to look at issues, I, I think, in a fairly unbiased way. And again, they have that global perspective, so it's not just looking at America. And I think that's important for us as we keep an eye on the world around us. Uh, when it comes to books, my favorite leadership book, frankly, is, is a book called Creating Magic by Lee Cockrell. Lee spoke at the Army JAG School one time when I was there, and he's a former executive vice president of Disney. 
He ran Disney World, uh, Walt Disney World Operations, and he has this great leadership book, Creating Magic. And he also has a podcast that's pretty good. And so I like the book Creating Magic from military authors. Uh, the book Team of Teams by General Stan McChrystal is, is great. And obviously, I, he was uh, my boss and client for a number of years. And so I, you know, I got to see, I got to see him in action and he's an amazing leader. And, and so I would recommend that team of teams to anybody. And then my last boss in the military, uh, General Marty Dempsey just published a book, which I haven't had a chance to read yet, but knowing him, it's going to be phenomenal. It's called no time for spectators. And so he goes from his time, I think all the way back at West Point to his time as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So that, that's going to be a pretty amazing book, I would think. Great, sir. Well, thank you very much for uh, your time today. And we hope to have you on again on a future episode of Battlefield Next. Oh, that'd be great, JJ. Thank you, Jason. It, it's been good talking to you. That's it for the episode. For more information related to FCD, you can follow us on Twitter at JAGFCD or by visiting our webpage. Finally, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. While this is a podcast created by U.S. Army Judge Advocates from the Future Concepts Directorate, our goal is to reach other judge advocates and lawyers across the DOD, law students, and members of academia. Your reviews help make this possible.